Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wander in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, in going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is that we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the second day of our 2021 winter seven-day session, and um, today is the Sunday, the 1st of August. I gave the wrong date yesterday. It was, in fact, the, the 31st of July yesterday. Uh, we're going to continue with our text, The Life and Teachings of Russell Williams, um, which has the title, Not I, Not Other Than I, and it's edited by Steve Taylor. And um, we left off um, where Russell Williams, Williams had this, um, this awakening experience um, through paying attention to his horses. He goes on... Um, in another chapter, which we I think we just started, Horses and Healing, 
um, talking about this this um, special relationship he developed with horses and telling various stories um, about about his his um, powers that he or or sensitivities that he developed and um, you can just give a, um, one or two examples here um, he went with um, this the circus that he was employed by to Ireland to Dublin and then on the way back he uh, got got stuck uh, couldn't take the boat because he didn't have his identity card that he needed to sail with and so he had to stay behind while the rest of the circus went on um, but while he was there he um, got this very strong sense of of the horses that he looked after being agitated he says I, I was deeply disturbed I couldn't understand what was going on something was distressing them very deeply what could it be and this was when there were many miles between him and the horses. He continues, Eventually I retrieved the identity card and sailed over a few days later. I hitchhiked my way back to our winter quarters, arriving about 3 a.m. and made my way to the stables. There was no light, but everything was familiar. I knew precisely where everything was. As I was walking through, something grabbed me by the ankle and threw me to the ground. I'm fighting something in the dark. I can feel its fur. I find its neck and start squeezing it, and it gives in. I know animals, once they've given in, it's over. So I let it go, knowing it won't fight back. I find the hurricane lamp, light it, and realize I've been fighting a baboon. A chakma baboon. It was on a chain, though enough to allow it to run around a few yards, but not long enough to reach the horses. I realized that was why the horses were so distressed, a strange animal they couldn't understand. I was so bonded with them that I'd picked up their feelings from hundreds of miles away. He starts, um, he started to de develop um, such a, a reputation um, that people ask him to come when they have problem horses. And one of the first incidents that leads to this reputation is um, when he takes a new job at a, a different circus and um, he's given four horses to look after. But um, on his first day, there's a big commotion uh, because one of the grooms has been very badly mauled by one of the horses there in the circus and has, has had to be taken to hospital. And apparently he was the fourth person who this had happened to with this particular horse. And so when he goes into the stable, he finds the, the circus owner's son about to whip the horse. And he tells him not to do it. And the, and the son replies, but he's mauled a man. It's the fourth time it's happened. And uh, Russell Williams replies, you're not doing that. You'll only make it worse. If you want to chastise an animal, you've got to do it in the moment, otherwise they won't make the connection. As far as it goes, there's no such thing as a bad horse. I'll take it on in addition to the four others I've got, and I guarantee that within 24 hours I'll have it like a kitten. And if I don't, you can use the whip on me. The horse's name was Mephisto, a big black Frisian horse, a stallion, a lovely animal. 
I went into his stall and he turned towards me, lifting his head and baring his teeth. I held up my finger as if to say no and gave a sign that I would retaliate if necessary. I walked up to his nose, patted it, showing him I was a friend, not a foe. I breathed into his nostrils, quietly and gently, so that we were exchanging breath. He accepted me straight away. I could sense him calming down. I rolled my hand over his body, gently stroking his legs at each foot. Inside, half an hour, everything was at peace. I was struck by this, um, the breathing into the horse's nostrils and, and thinking of the hongi, which um, is so important a part of greeting in, in Te Ao Māori. And this hongi is um, exactly this, an exchange of breath, exchange of the life force. A way of uh, recognizing and honoring our interconnectedness, our relationship. Just um, one more here. This is where he's he's called to help with some particularly difficult horses that have been brought over um, from a, a wild part of Ireland to be broken in. And he's called in. I walked into the corral with a bucket of water and sat and waited. After an hour or so, one of them came up to drink some water from the bucket and I let him drink it. I sat there completely calm and quietly. He took a few sniffs and accepted me. I did that for two days and one by one each horse came up to drink and sniffed me and accepted me. I managed to get collars onto them all and into the stables. After those two days, they were all working with me, not against me. He finds um, that he also has um, a skill in helping horses who've twisted their ankles. I would heal them with a kind of manipulation, a kind of massage but perhaps a type of spiritual healing too. I couldn't explain it. It was just a touch I had. And I've done it with people too. Years later at the Buddhist Society in Manchester, there was a girl who worked with my friend Connie who went out walking in the Peak District and hurt her ankle so badly she could hardly stand up. I worked on her, used the same kind of massage and manipulation I did with the horses. And by the following day, she was back at work. And remember how he said that he could sort of enter into the, um, the consciousness of, of people and things that he encountered. Also, in a sense, he seems to have been able to enter into the, into the ankles of people and horses. I felt a rapport with people too, but in a different way. People are deceptive. They even deceive themselves. 
I can sense the true nature underlying their personalities, and that true nature is wonderful. But the terrible thing is that their minds are full of chaos and brutality. They're not what they really are. When you see a little kitten, your first instinct is to respond with love and kindness. That's how I respond to everybody, even though there's a tinge of sadness because of their inability to see their own true nature. One of the first times I saw that clearly was in Blackpool, where I went for a season. It was a Sunday, and I was in a pub having a drink with some of the folk from the show. We were in a room in the pub, and a girl popped her head around the door, and as if she were looking for a friend. I looked up and glanced at her, and suddenly, for the first time, I saw the light within, in a human being. It was wonderful, a revelation, seeing this radiance inside her, something that was totally different to her surface personality. I began to see it in other people too, a spark of spirituality deep within. For some people it's faint, like a glowing ember, but for others it's very bright. I remember having something akin to this, um, actually, uh, a couple of times, both of them right after Sashin, of seeing people, even people with, with, with sad faces, and seeing that their, their sadness, their struggles, but at the same time this, this light, this luminosity that shines as well. Next chapter is called Confirmation. He describes his life post this, this uh, insight experience as being um, utterly different. He says, it was like being born all over again, living a new life. Once I'd settled into this new state, which took a while, I felt I had something very valuable which people should know about. I was travelling around and tried to explain what I was experiencing to local vicars and clergymen. I told them I only saw wholeness, with no separation, this natural state of being which was nurturing and kindness. I thought it would interest them, but they didn't understand. They thought it was far-fetched or that I was being blasphemous. I was dealing with it from a heart point of view while they were coming from an intellectual perspective. They couldn't communicate on my level and I couldn't on theirs, so we were talking across purposes. They were dealing with belief while I was talking about the reality of experience, so it was totally different. This went on for a few years until I realized there was no point and stopped approaching people. The lack of understanding from others had the effect of making me very confused. I had a lot of knowledge, but I couldn't communicate it to anybody. I began to doubt myself. I thought, if nobody can appreciate this, I must be mad. I'm so different to everybody else. I knew deep down that I wasn't mad, that I had something that was profoundly important to other people, but it was overlaid with this confusion. By this time I was back in London. I came back 
after the season in Blackpool and found a job straight away as a lifeguard at the swimming baths in Islington. I had a garret room in Finsbury Park and one night I was sitting up there pondering over it all, feeling upset and frustrated. The frustration grew in intensity inside me until I shouted out, For God's sake, somebody help me! The next moment, there was a massive flood of peace, a vast emptiness full of love. There was no substance. It was the same serene feeling that I'd had before with the horses, but in greater depth. It was as if someone had dropped a soft, warm blanket over me. It stayed with me for three days. I asked if I was allowed to know who or what was responsible for the flood of peace, and a man's face appeared in my mind's eye, a foreign face, dark-skinned, possibly Indian. My only thought was, I've never seen such a sweet, beautiful face on a man in all my life. There was such benevolence in it. He was grey-haired with a beard and the most beautiful eyes, full of love and benevolence. I didn't know who he was at the time. Just three days later, I was working at the baths as usual, and a storm blew up, with lightning and thunder. I travelled back to my room in Finsbury Park and did something I've never done before. I bought an evening paper on the corner of the street. What did I get this for, I was thinking. I opened it at a page full of adverts, all the same size, and one jumped out, about somebody who was giving a lecture on spiritual healing in Holloway, about four miles away. Even with the dreadful weather, I felt impelled to go. I arrived there like a drowned rat while the lecture was already underway. It was a church hall, about a dozen people present, and I sat in the back row. There was a man, two chairs in front of me, making notes on a pad. When the lecture was over, the speaker asked for any questions, and this man in front of me stood up and gave him a massive dressing down, even worse than I'd heard in the army. The intensity was amazing. This isn't spiritual healing, he said. You should never attempt to teach people about spiritual healing. You don't know what you're talking about. Then he suddenly turned around to me and said, I suppose you're the reason I came here this evening, aren't you? It certainly wasn't for that. There was a coffee shop about a couple of doors down and we went there and, and spoke until two o'clock in the morning. He asked me various questions, all related to Buddhism, and he was amazed by my answers. How do you know all this, he asked. I just know, I said. But how did you come to know? This is all pure Buddhism. He was John Gary, one of the founders of the Buddhist Society of Manchester. He was the first person I ever met who could understand me. I could explain the way I experienced the world, and he could relate it to the teachings of Buddhism. I felt a deep rapport with him. We decided to meet up again and work together virtually every evening. I'd describe my experiences and he'd tell me which Buddhist sutta it fitted with. It was a massive relief to find out that I wasn't mad after all. I found out later that he'd been drawn to that meeting in a similar convoluted way to me.
he had felt impelled to go too, even though he wasn't keen. Um, it turned out that John was a um, John Gary, who he'd met, was a was a, um, an out of work actor, making his living as a painter and decorator, and also quite a, a psychic, a, uh, himself a spiritual healer. Healer, um, and uh, Russell Williams described him as one of the best healers he'd ever met. So a new a new sort of chapter um, started in Russell Williams' life uh, on uh, meeting this John Gary. He introduced her to, her, to him to um, another founder member of the Buddhist Society of of Manchester, Connie Waterton. We talked for hours comparing notes, and I found that there was another person who understood me, who knew exactly what I was talking about when I explained how I saw the world. Connie made me feel that there was a group in Manchester who would be very welcoming, who I could communicate with and feel at home with, so I decided to head up to Manchester on New Year's Eve 1957. Connie put me up, and after a few days I found a job at Kellogg's. The Buddhist Society of Manchester began after the war when food rationing was very tight and there was a series of lectures on diet. The group of people attended them and found there was a rapport between them and decided to study other things together. They studied Buddhism with the help and guidance of a Burmese monk, U Titila, and inaugurated the society in 1951. One of the members took the robe in Thailand, Bhikkhu Kapilavado, and started the English Sangha, in other words, ordained Sangha. Connie was 16 years older than I, a very small woman, a Leo with piercing eyes. When she looked at people, they were initially afraid of her because of her eyes. They thought she was looking through them at their darkest secrets, but she was actually looking at the light within. She could see the very nature of what was happening. She had such a loving quality, the softest heart of ever, anyone I've ever known, and an unbelievable intuitive understanding of other people. Um, she, Connie, had been and was continued to be a very important uh, person in promoting Buddhism in the UK and organised the first um, summer schools at the... Uh, Buddhist Society of Manchester and um, intensive meditation retreats as well, uh, helping to organise visits by uh, various uh, bhikkhus, um, Theravada monks, um, and even managing to persuade British Rail to let them have free tickets <laughs> from London to Manchester. She held the first meditation weekends in a hotel in Buxton and organised um, uh, funds 
which paid for a house for the first Beckos to live in in Hampstead. So she was a she was a, a definitely a mover and a shaker in the in the Buddhist world of um, in Britain at that time. The Buddhist Society of Manchester met in Connie's house. In fact, it still meets there today. I did feel at home there straight away. The first time I'd felt at home since being a small child. <clears throat> I knew it was where I was supposed to be. Now I had a purpose, to be there for other people so they could gain something from me. That was the path I was meant to be taking, the one I'd tried to find. She, he meets with many other members of the of the organisation, and they they um, question him intensely, and and um, he discovers more and more about how his uh, understanding uh, accords with the teachings of Buddhism. Soon after my arrival in Manchester, I opened a book by an Indian teacher I'd never heard of, Ramana Maharshi. There was a picture at the front of the book, and I recognized him straight away. It was the man I'd seen that night when I was full of frustration in my room in Finsbury Park, when I'd cried out for help. I assumed that somehow he was looking after me. When I read more about him, I found he was a very remarkable man, and I've always felt deeply connected to him. I feel that his nature is always with me, though not as a person. In the meetings at the society, there is often a powerful, warm silence, and within that silence there is a tremendous influence. I've wondered many times if that's Ramana's influence coming through, as, is, as if his, his nature is acting through me, not his personality, but his nature. I think that's where my emanation comes from. I can't complain any wisdom or kudos for myself. It's not me. I don't have the skill. If anything, I feel humbled and privileged to serve as a channel. Ramana is another doorway, a channel from some huge spiritual source whose whole nature is to nurture, to grow, to become, coming to life rather than death, although not necessarily in a physical form. From time to time, his presence has been felt by others at the society too. Um, just a little bit about this Ramana Maharshi. He's one of the great spiritual teachers and influenced many, including Roshi Kaplow, who went to his place. Uh, um, he had already died by that point, but went to his, his ashram uh, in South India. So his, his dates are 1879 to 1950. I'm reading here from the Encyclopedia of Eastern Philosophy and Religion. Um, one of the greatest spiritual teachers of modern-day India. At the age of 17, Sri Ramana Maharshi attained a profound experience of his true self without the guidance of a guru and thereafter remained conscious of his identity with the Absolute Brahman at all times. After some years of reclusion at the holy mountain Arunachala in South India, he finally began again to speak. He was, he was um, completely silenced for some years. 
um, and to reply to the questions put to him by spiritual seekers all over the world. He followed no particular traditional system of teaching, but rather spoke directly from his own experience of non-duality. Ramana Maharshi wrote virtually nothing. His teaching took the form of conversations with visitors seeking his guidance, as transcribed by his followers, the brief instructions he left with his followers, and a few religious songs. His method of instruction was to direct the questioner again and again to his true self, and to recommend, as a path to realization, a tireless form of self-inquiry featuring the question, Who am I? So you can see um, the, the affinities between uh, Ramana Maharshi and uh, Russell Williams in the sense that uh, they both had a, how you could call a, a spontaneous awakening, um, not, not um, independent of any teaching. And they both taught very much out of that direct experience rather than referring to any texts. continues talking about the um, Connie's house where the Buddhist Society of Manchester was based. I lived in the house for 18 years until Connie died. We had a platonic relationship, a spiritual partnership. We worked together very comfortably for a long time. When newcomers arrived at the centre, we assessed their needs and were able to decide between us what the best course of action for them was, what type of meditation they should practice and so forth. In those days, we met every night, every day of the week, sometimes till the early hours of the morning. At weekends sometimes, we went through the night without sleeping. It was a completely new role to me, a spiritual teacher, I suppose. I was allowed a free hand and learnt a lot as I went along. You can get a sense of the intensity of the practice um, where um, creature comforts such as getting a good night's sleep were dropped in the, in the fervour uh, of, the, of the, the Dharma exploration that they were undertaking. It also points to the fact that that um, Buddhism isn't isn't um, a belief, and it's not something we do as a form of worship, but rather it's a kind of training. And I've mentioned this before that uh, um, spiritual teacher, um, whose name I'm just forgetting right at the moment, but he he talks about a zendo as being more akin to a a dojo, a training hall, than it is to a church. So it's not about just coming along once a week uh, to be uplifted, but to train. And that means every day. And sometimes it means through the night. 
he continues, there was no knowledge. My mind was still an empty blank. It's as though your mind is empty but clear and sharp and so able to notice phenomena you would never have believed existed. They aren't so much things but qualities of a very subtle kind. He says there was no knowledge. I think here of, of the famous words of Bodhidharma when asked who he was by Emperor Wu. I don't know. Or of the Enso, which is such an um, important art form, the, the circle in Zen, expression of, of the truth, the nature of mind. Just as a person can instinctively sense certain factors about other people through their feelings, this doesn't operate through intellectual recognition, but from the unconditioned realm. Consequently, it doesn't carry any knowledge of things, but as soon as requested, it picks up vibrations, feelings, intuitions. I don't know exactly how it happens. Um, we'll, we'll encounter as we go into some more of his teachings in the next few days that he quite often will talk about um, uh, communicating or relating through feelings. And uh, it's clear that he doesn't mean just just emotions, but also um, sense, our sensory world and our intuitive uh, faculty as well. All of these uh, are bundled up under his t in the term he uses, feelings. You can see it here when he says, picking up vibrations, feelings, and intuitions. I don't know exactly how it happens. It's not knowledge I've built up, but something which comes through me. I assume it is pure consciousness itself, speaking through this body, even to the point that, and this surprises me more than anything else, from time to time I've found myself speaking particular words which I have no knowledge of in the right context. And when I check, I find that it was the right usage. So when he checks the teachings, there's this expression that's sometimes used in, in Zen when, when recognizing someone has, who has uh, a potential to be a teacher. It's to call them a vessel of the Dharma. A vessel. The space. The container through which the teaching can come. goes on talking about his, his teaching role at the, the Buddhist Society of Manchester. I didn't come through the traditions, but from a direct path, as did Ramana Maharshi, so, though, though he would be classed, he was, he, Ramana never, um, as far as I know, um, talked about Buddhism. He came more from uh, the, the uh, the language that he used was more that of the Advaita Vedanta. 
I didn't come through the traditions but from a direct path. So I started to show people this method so that they didn't have to go around the houses through the traditions. As it developed of itself, it's become quite unique, based on feeling rather than words. It involves appreciating people in the depth of their feelings rather than their thoughts in their thoughts or understanding. I'm not interested in knowledge. It's not teaching. It's showing. Introducing people to the deeper levels of their own being. I don't want people to learn anything. I want them to open up and see their true nature. Patience has to come in. It can take years. You have to wait until the moment is right. Then I begin to reveal their nature more and more until they realize that it's already there. This is something I think we can't hear enough, the importance of patience and, and of, of things maturing to, a, to the right moment. And this is not something that is under our control. But to the, the readiness is all. That's what we can do. We can, we can um, position ourselves in a way that we are open to this unfolding when it occurs. Gradually, I persuaded the society members to ignore the books. For a long time, I was completely opposed to books. I used to say, don't read anything. Just look into your experience. Forget the theory. It just takes you further away. And so the group became purely experiential. A um, couple of things, I think, in reading this is... Um, we can be very grateful for books. <laughs> We're reading from a book and <laughs> taking inspiration from it, uh, but it's important to see that how its limits, the limits of books in terms of um, being fingers pointing at the moon, not the moon itself. Think of the, um, uh, the, 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 the four phrases that are um, used to describe Zen special teaching, independent of the sutras, not relying on words or letters, a direct pointing to the human heart and realizing Buddhahood. Seems to be what Russell Williams was aiming at, direct pointing to the human heart. The theory can help us to get to the point where we see that we have to realize the truth for ourselves, that, that the intellectual understanding is not sufficient, may be necessary, but it's not enough. I was eternally grateful to Connie. She taught me love, which mellowed me and gave me a deeper insight. Because of my difficult early life, I was inclined to be harsh, she also gave me a home. Before I came to Manchester, I had never been in one place for longer than two years. Coming here was like joining a family, and that's how it still feels now. He goes on to describe his, his um, 
the work during all of these these years. Um, most of it working for an engineering form firm um, made um, uh, gaskets for valves and conveyor belts and um, joints for boilers and so forth. And um, he started in um, absolutely on the ground level of of the the business, but came eventually to manage the whole of the shop floor. He says, doing all the stock keeping, directing the rest of the workers, as well as travelling around to paper mills, recovering large rollers on site. My colleagues didn't know anything about my other work as a teacher. They sensed I was different, but I didn't think, but I don't think they could pinpoint how. They all accepted me, and I had a good relationship with them. They saw me as a sympathetic ear, someone they could come to with their problems. It was as if they felt I would listen to them without any judgment. Sometimes I wouldn't even have to speak. They would talk through their issues and walk away, as if they'd realized a solution to the problem themselves. They seemed to benefit from the calmness of my presence and the full attention I gave. It's interesting here that he uses the same word um, in, that he had in talking about his relationship to the horses, that they accepted him and that he didn't even have to say anything, just his presence, just his, his um, attention could shift things for people. This, this can happen between people. If you, if you have somebody who can, who can listen to you, can be so helpful when struggling with some issue. But it can also happen on the mat, when we attend to what is going on in us, what's, what we're feeling and thinking, without, getting, without identifying with these things that are arising, if we can do that, if we can pay close attention, then things shift. They start to, to um, fall into place. If we give our full, non-judgmental attention, He continues, I still do that now. This is listening without any judgment. Whenever I encounter somebody, whether it's the girl on the till at the supermarket, the bus driver, or a workman who comes to the house, I always give them my full attention, always look them in the eye and speak directly to them. It's amazing how they react. Their faces light up and they always send back benevolence to me. After um, Russell Williams had been in Manchester for 18 years, um, his, his colleague and friend Connie became seriously ill. Um, she was given medication for um, a condition that had a side effect of tunnel vision. And um, she was one day in the centre of Manchester crossing a road and didn't see a, a large tanker approaching and she she crossed into its path and it um, collided with her and threw her to the ground and um, to to cut a long story short 
she ended up um, uh, it, having broken her hip um, actually in a, at, a, at a later date uh, but when she was already ill and, con and convalescing from the, the collision and um, was discovered when she broke her hip that, that she had osteomyelitis and it couldn't be, the, 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 the fracture couldn't be healed. And he, he tells of, of, of the, what happened next when he started to, to look after her. The interesting thing was she refused all painkillers. She wasn't in pain. I overheard the nurse speaking to the doctor about it, wondering how on earth she could cope with the pain without medication. But Connie wasn't suffering. She died two weeks later. I was by her side for the last two days, and with her at the moment she passed away. She was conscious right up to the last, her eyes completely bright. She quietly slipped away. I could tell by her eyes that she wouldn't be coming back again. So all in all, the time that he had spent um, looking after her um, from from the collision through until when she died was two years. And um, she she uh, he was quite exhausted at this at this point. Um, Some time after her death, um, solicitors came to the house um, and informed him that she had left the house to uh, Russell Williams, and he and he lived in it for some years after that. Um, he also um, invited a Cambodian monk who was who was stuck in in Manchester to come and stay. Um, it was the time of. Uh, of Pol Pot and the monk had been cut off from his support from home and apparently the government wasn't didn't want to help him anyway and and so he was he was sort of marooned so Russell Williams invited him to come and stay at, at the Buddhist center which was where he lived as it was well and um, the, the Chanda Wanda Chanda Wana was his name and he was able to take over some of the teaching duties and um, later expressed his, his gratitude for having been able to stay there for a year and um, um, he said he learned much about Buddhism that he hadn't in all his time in Cambodia. Around this same time um, Russell Williams married one of the other members of the of the uh, society who had um, been uh, helping him through um, Connie's illness, and so then he ended up moving away, and the and um, the house was donated to the the Buddhist Society of Manchester, which still still owns it now, or at least when this book was written. That takes us on to the last chapter in his life story. I don't think we're going to have time to get, get through all of it. Um, 
perhaps we just um, stop here and uh, continue with the rest um, next tomorrow. So we'll stop now and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.